We've had Me Too, and now we have this dumb fuck, Doug Ford. Already he is changing Ontario for the worst, reverting the sex ed curriculum to a time when Napster was all the rage, canceled increased education on Indigenous issues in schools. What's next? Birthdays? He needs to be stopped, and we need to move beyond awareness. We need fucking action. Support the work being done by us, your resident feminist diehard bitches, for initiatives like Orders Up, our clapback against the restaurant industry's culture of sexual harassment, and support a podcast that has your feminist back. Check us out at patreon.com forward slash bad and bitchy to support independent, intersectional feminist media as we form the resistance against Doug Ford. Stay woke, y'all. Stay bitchy. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. You guys, it's so good to be reunited. Reunited. Um, (laughs) The three of us haven't been together in like, what, two months? Oh, man. Six weeks? Yeah, because... Yeah. Shit. It's been a while. Yeah, definitely all of August. Mm -hmm. And then one or two weeks in July. Yeah, that's true. God. Hey. Which is nice. But it feels so right. You know what? But like... I also feel like I talk to you guys all the time. Because we live on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. We do actually talk all the time. I don't even know when you're out of the country. Okay. It's all a blur. Fair. I have to go to Instagram to be like, is Erin like in Ottawa? Yeah. She's still doing work. Like things are being posted (laughs) on our accounts and we're like, who did this? Yeah, exactly. I'm doing interviews. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. That one really threw me actually. I was like pretty confused. It was very confusing time wise. Are the Instagrams later grams or like the, like what came first? Yeah. 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 Um, The the chronological outlay is is confusing. I do agree. Yeah, yeah. If you could be less fabulous and more straightforward, that'd be really great oh, for us. Okay, I'll yeah. see what I can Thank do. You. It would be like, um, yeah. Okay, quick two sentences. How was your summer? Three sentences, five sentences, uh, but short. Let's go. Hot. Hot? Um. <laughs> oh, Erica's at a loss for words. I know. This is, uh, this is a first. Breaking news. Yeah. <laughs> Mine was surprising. In the sense that um, I grew in ways that I didn't know right. I could or would or whatever. So it, it's it's really, it was kind of mysterious and kind of like rewarding at the same time. Mm. Yeah. Mine was um, relaxing, busy, and hot. Hot. It yeah. was hot. It was fucking hot. Anyway, um, we've got a bunch of things that we got to cover. So uh, let's just get into it. So uh, this week in feminism, we're going to cover some kind of big overarching topics. And the first one is a follow-up to our more rec- most recent um, podcast, our bonus episode on U.S. reproductive rights. So if you haven't listened to that, go check it out. Um, we spoke to Imani Gandhi and Jessica Mason Piclo from Rewired.News um, about uh, reproductive rights in the U.S., um, and the ongoing Kavanaugh hearings happening in the with the U.S. Senate's uh, Judiciary Committee. Um, but this week, uh, the U- during the hearings, uh, the Judi- Judiciary Committee... Wow, I cannot say judiciary. 
I oh yeah, that's a tricky one. Yeah. I don't think I can say judiciary anymore <laughs> with my new orthodontic uh, appliances <laughs> in. <laughs> um, so the the confirmation hearings for the next U.S. Supreme Court justice um, have been ongoing, and Trump nominated Brett Kavanaugh, um, and the the last four days of that first week of September um, have been he's been testifying in front of this committee. Um, you know, there's been opening statements. And the senators each get 20 minutes to kind of grill him on his past decisions, uh, previous work, et cetera. Um, and so th the week resulted in a number of viral moments and perhaps may even result in the expulsion of a handful of Democrats from the committee. So the notable highlights are that uh, California Senator Kamala Harris grilled Kavanaugh about his connection to the Mueller probe in with her expert cross-examination style. She also grilled him about his views on Roe v. Wade and abortion, wherein he's forced to admit that no medical procedures affecting only men are regulated or subject to state interference. Uh, she also, I mean, this is apparently a Kamala Harris fan pod. Um, <laughs> she also grilled him on whether or not he sides with the majority on same-sex marriage rulings, and he kind of squirmed and was uncomfortable. And then um, U.S. Senator Democrat Cory Booker, joined later by uh, Hawaii Senator Maisie Hirono, released documents that were, quote, committee confidential to the public and told the committee to, quote, bring it when threatened with expulsion. The documents revealed Kavanaugh's views on affirmative action and race-based discrimination. Um, I, <laughs> I think I tweeted that, uh, you know, the uh, U.S. Senate boyfriend was like is like the hottest thing. <laughs> <laughs> he's, I th he's my Nebo. I think he sent us an urgent text message yeah, saying exactly that <laughs> as <think> well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so kind of building on a conversation we had with um, Jess and Imani, um, is this the right way for the Democrats to kind of tackle this this um, this hearing? You know, they're mm -hmm. they're showing leadership. They had a number of options. You know, they don't have the majority in the Senate and r because of the Senate, ch the rules have changed. They don't need 60 votes anymore. They just need a simple majority. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's 51 49 for the Republicans. Is this the right way for them to kind of stall and like really kind of flag the issues about Brett Kavanaugh? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know that so much they're stalling. I think they're like, you know, carrying on probably in a way that we've not really quite seen in terms of how committee committee members would conduct themselves. Um, it's been like fun to watch. I um, hope no one at my work is listening to this, but like I definitely <laughs> had the like hearings running in the background for a lot of the day and it like the week and it was like intense and interesting to watch and it's the kind of thing that I think for people interested in these sort like in in these sorts of political happenings like doesn't come around too often and it's like a total like treat um but having said that I mean they started off with like a, a, a strategy of talking about the documents and like the fact that the document like there's like a million 
documents that were not this like uh, only a fraction of which and like you know i think like they go down and do the math or like you only gave us two hundred thousand out of those two like and it's like maybe like three percent was released to the committee and some were more committee confidential and they made a big stink about we can't proceed and kept wanting to adjourn the committee until they got the documents i don't really like that tactic because like the crux of the issue with the kavanaugh appointment is that he is being appointed while their president is being investigated mm. like that's the real issue his view and whether or not he'd be a good like appointee and whether or not he you know was like and what his background are are almost secondary to that and i think it's kind of unfortunate that democrats didn't lead with that and just like filibuster or refuse to participate in the hearings altogether and kind of like do what the republicans did around like merrick garland but instead by being part of the committee hearings i think they're sort of acquiescing like they're they're admitting that there is still some legitimacy and even trump getting to nominate anyone at all at this time and i think like that's a huge issue um, especially before the midterm election. So, I mean, I liked their play. And as it went on in the week, I was like, you know, how, like it was they went a lot further than I would have anticipated the Democrats to go, especially yes. Cory Brooker releasing those documents. It showed like just so much, you know, gumption, whatever. And his all of his introductions, all Kamala Harris's introductions, their speeches in the introductory comments were like so forceful, beautiful speeches, really passionate. Definitely what people need to hear. But they could have done that outside the room and refused to carry on with the hearings. I will pick up from that and will say that a lot of people, a lot of people in the Democratic base are disenchanted with the Democratic leadership. Mm. It is not surprising to me that it's Booker and Harris that really kicked up a stink. And I agree with you. I think the Democrats should have done the same as the Republicans did with Merrick Garland, because once they participate in these hearings, he's going to get confirmed. Yes, but they don't have the balance of power. Yeah, they don't have the votes, but they could filibuster, couldn't they? Not this. There are different rules that they could engage in to either like make a protracted like debate or even like and they did try to play with the rules they had like motions for adjournment mm. and things like that but i meant before or or, they, or at least walking you know. out entirely and then if not like preventing the vote like making may, like calling into question the legitimacy Sh of the process yeah sure but i like in listening to other podcasts like it seems as though because the, the republicans hold the balance of power they could just like move to push him through the, the committee if the democrats weren't there yeah, po like, like whether or not like that's very anti-democratic and yeah. like very cynical, hundred percent possibly. But it does take away the shroud of legitimacy of participating. Like even sure. put it, posing questions to him that like I don't give up. Like the thing should be I don't really care what his views on X, Y, and Z are. He is not. This isn't the time. And find a way to like at least push the nominee like or whatever until after the midterms or well, get that's some the, Republicans that's, to agree that they'll that's wait. That's the issue. You know, is sometime. that. I'm not sure that the Republicans would want to make that play so close to midterms. Yeah. So also, I they think only need like one or two people to yeah, move over to their yeah, side, they even if really, they support Kavanaugh. Yeah, to they move really. To the I think Senator Susan Collins or something was one of them. Um, Collins and Murkowski are the most yeah, likely. Most likely. Um, I'm not sure, but it's. I think they have a bigger play than we think, just because of the timing. And just because, I mean, politically speaking anyway. So I'm not sure that if the Democrats walked out, that the Republicans would really want to push that. 
is what I'm saying. But anyway, I will say Kamala Harris, um, you know, I felt like I was being questioned. I felt like her questioning was like me being questioned by my West Indian mother. I mean, I was just like, so what you're saying is, do you, do you need me to repeat the question? I was just like, and the look she gave mm -hmm. and everything, I was like, my goodness. Cory Booker, it's not surprising that it, um, it's Cory Booker, Booker, Booker and Kamala Harris because they are the sort of Democratic upstarts. And it's interesting to me that when Cory Booker started um, his uh, defiance, a few Democrats joined in. It's, sometimes it only takes one. But political courage with in terms of Democrats is um, f like it's few and far between, in my opinion. And I think that's their problem. Do you think that's because they're just they're trying to be like, oh, you know, we're so we're so pro process. We're so sticklers for like the rules of like decorum and all of these things and that they're just like. Well, we want to be polite. We want to. We don't want to be like we're going to be compared to Republicans who are just throwing out all of these like norms, and we want to show that we respect those norms. And they are. Do you think it's they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot by not playing dirty in the same way? Yeah, it's pearl clutching politics, really, with the Democrats. They want to be. They want to be, they want to, I, let's put it this way. I think that they come from um, a generation at, that's used to working with Republicans, centrists. Yeah, they're all centrists. So they're all just smidgets or shades of each other, the Republicans and Democrats for a long time. I don't think that the establishment Democrats know how to deal with the Republicans right now. It's this acquiescing that is a problem. I think that they think that they're dealing with rational people who they can still make a deal with. And I think that's the problem, that they feel that they can somehow reason with them and come out with something because to them something is better than nothing i mean i think that's that was the play with the documents to sort of appeal yeah. to some kind of reason and like that may have worked as a as maybe a bit of a stalling tactic i mean the document dump of like whatever the forty thousand documents on the like holiday monday of like the hearings was the pretty night absurd before. the night before um like 11 p.m they're like oh well you should have had a chance to read them like it you know i mean that that's playing dirty for sure um and yeah, a little bit naive on the part of Democrats to think that they could stall that. And then the the documents that they chose to release that were labeled committee confidential um, also were ones that deal with issues uh, that play like would appeal to Democratic voters, um, whether it's the affirmative action stuff or the racial. And I think like. Uh, you know, I don't know what that serves in terms of like getting more Republicans on side to vote against him. I think they should have done more around like the fact that he had, um, you know, like there was all this stuff about him during the George Bush era giving advice on uh, whether uh, th like the torture program, the torture, right, for example. Yeah. And like the um, and he was caught, you know, a couple of times making fraudulent statements. And like, I think that's probably more convincing to the 
Collins of the world, but like I'm not, I'm still, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm still not sure of, of whether or not any of this is going to make it much of a difference. I'm really skeptical, but maybe they, they think it does. Maybe they already have a line on a couple of people that they could move. Well, I guess the question is, I mean, it seems like to me, like you're making the assumption that the Democrats are voting as a block, which they aren't. That's a good point. I am making that assumption. But because they need to. to be able to whip like their people. If not on this, yeah. then they're kind of screwed. But that's a good point. But I don't know that the Democrats that they're losing are all are swayed by the, the, you know the judges' opinions on affirmative action said you know 15 years ago. I read something recently on the contrasting styles of Harris and uh, Feinstein, and I think that that is a perfect frame. Well, yeah. Because for Democrat, the Democratic Party right now, because mm-hmm. they're, well, they're both in California. Yeah. Yeah. There is the old guard in the Democrat who, you know, they want to reach across the aisle and that's how you get things done. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. But we're in a time right now where everything is polarized. And I think that they're the Democratic base wants people who will fight for them mm. who will fight for those ideals that um that they the democrats seem to have lost when clinton took the party more right mm-hmm. so um how i really am interested in whether or not like who's going to stick around for the old guard who's not going to be primary because the same thing is happening on the left right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that the establishment is also like other establishments where activism and disobedience are they're to- like they tone police their own people, and those things are bad words. They are almost like four letter words to be an activist or to be. Um, or to not follow process or procedure and to take a stand. Um, so I, I, and I think that that's partially generational. It's partially demographics. But do you think it's changing? Oh, up. Oh. Do you think it's changing though? Because during the, I mean, also when Cory Brooker was breaking with the rules and, and saying like, bring it all, like literally saying, bring it, mm. I'll accept the expulsion. Mm-hmm. There were a number of other people, I think Feinstein included, Blumenthal included. There were like a couple more of the senior folks who I would never have imagined would have supported I was surprised that. too, yeah. Jump on. And I think they may be seeing like, this is the new path. Yeah. But I, I, I don't hope know what so. you think about I that. hope yeah. so. Because I agree with you. I saw... Um, uh, it may be in was it Leahy or somebody Leahy and I think who is it Durbin yes and Durbin yeah. and I was like they jumped it like they were like, all like they tripping were all, over themselves yeah. to like come to his defense it was actually kind of an endearing moment um, <laughs> they would never have thought to do it themselves but it, like and they and maybe that's it maybe but maybe they have could have gone a very different way yeah maybe they've realized that that um, to stand in the way of this sort of of left wing mm-hmm. boulder that's running down the hill and gathering steam is going to run over them mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, I hope so. And only the next few weeks will tell, mm-hmm. especially when we see the midterms and how those are played out. Um, 
I think that... Well, they see it because all of their jobs uh, are now on the line from the, young yes, activist yes, folks who well, are yes. coming for them in the primary, in the exactly. nomination. Exactly. So. Well, that's the thing is that, like, so Feinstein is 84. What? Guys. Yeah. She is very sharp for 84. She is, like, I she's really she, on point. Yeah, I yeah. thought she was, like, 15, 20 years younger. Yeah, yeah. No. Oh, wow. Um, But anyway, so she was received a... Uh, primary challenge in June from the left and one came out with 63% of the vote. Um, but the way that um, the voting works in California is they take the top two candidates in a primary. Right. And so I think, I think it's not, I, I haven't quite found it yet, but it seems like she is running against another Democrat. Hmm. Uh, Kevin DeLeon. So, um, which is so bizarre. And that's why, like, the California primaries were so interesting in yeah. June because you could end up with two Republicans running against each other. Right. Or two Democrats. That's so instead scary. of one of each party. Two words. Ayanna Presley. Mm, yeah. And the, I, who she ran against, I think it was, Tom, oh gosh, now I can't even remember. Cupiano or Cupan. Anyway. You know how I am with names. So she... Um, Just she, won a primary. Yeah, she... First black woman uh, in Massachusetts for Congress. And what's interesting to me about this one is that it's not the same... It's not exactly the same as Ocasio... Um, um, you know. Yeah, uh, Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, um, Ocasio-Cortez. Um, because the guy she beat was actually pretty left already yeah. and she outflanked him and and just removed him from the entire well like, yes, I, but what so, but what she did though is that when they the her media person said that you know they their tv buys like tv buy is like a very old school thing for politicians to purchase uh, the only stations that they bought ads on were like Univision and like Telemundo. That so is they brilliant. Were, so they spent the rest of it all on digital, on um, print and phones. Well, maybe that is part of it, too, mm -hmm. is that the approach to reaching out to people yeah. from these younger people who have grown up with digital is up to is more up to date. It's more it seems to be more niche marketed. The targeting markets that are under exactly under, not underserved but under represented under targeted under targeted i would say underserved to be honest mm. i still think they're underserved and i mean what she did was brilliant so i i think it's part the the sort of the generational difference um but i also think it's the way that they are targeting people and the way, and they know who they want to target. And it's, they seem to have built up this digital presence too. All right, so. <sighs> you guys, I'm tired of talking about these fucking assholes. <laughs> Not <laughs> so the Monk debates announced their upcoming debate subject and star debaters. Oh. I'm, I'm not tired of talking about the monk debates. Like, that's fine. I'm tired of talking about one of the people that is going to be at the debate. So the debaters are none other than David Frum, who is a Canadian who worked with worked for George W. Bush. And 
this asshole, Steve Bannon, and they will be talking or debating rather the rise of populism. So the Monk debates, for those who don't know, are a semi-annual event held in Toronto at the Roy Thompson Hall uh, by a foundation started by Canadian business tycoon Peter Monk. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Debaters are to argue the resolution, quote, be it resolved, the future of Western politics is populist, not liberal, end quote. Steve Bannon will be arguing for the side of populism, of course, while David Frum will argue for liberalism, which seems bizarre. <laughs> he, he's been on a bit of a trip himself, like in terms of what he thinks he stands for. Sure. Yeah. Fuck David Frum, too. Oh, I, I, okay. The David Frum redemption might be no. the most objectionable you know, part, I, in my opinion. I am just so up. Okay, so now I'm upset. <laughs> can, can we finish this? Oh, sorry. <laughs> So uh, the announcement of the Monk debate um, came days after the New Yorker revoked an invitation to Steve Bannon to their festival as a headliner following backlash from other invited speakers who withdrew from the event, as well as from readers and staff of the New Yorker. No fucking kidding. Um, but the Monk debates are not adverse to controversy. In May of this year, they invited Jordan Peterson to debate the issue of political correctness, among other loathsome people in the past so erica care to to go (laughs) i'm upset (laughs) i am upset at at these right-wing redemption tour i'm tired i'm tired of hearing david from and bill crystal and all those motherfuckers Mm. who took us into a war that they didn't even have the the business to I shouldn't say us. I should say the U.S. But you know what I mean. Um, Like, these are people who argued for torture. Like, and now because Trump is somehow worse, they're better? Like, no, they're not liberals. They're not to be recast in the liberal image. I mean, the rebranding here is really pissing me off. And David Frum is a good example because I remember him. I remember mm-hmm. him beating the war drum on, and let's remember this: this war in Iraq was based on a lie. It's it was a lie, yeah. and he perpetrated that lie, along with yes, Hillary Clinton, and um, our friend all, Condoleezza Rice, who made an appearance this oh, week to introduce Condoleezza Rice too. <sighs> okay, she's mm. another one. I can't even. Anyway, I'm upset. Well, it, yeah, so it's really funny, like, the David Frum piece, just a bit on, like, that. He has trying to, like, frame himself as being... There's one article where he writes, just even, like, the headline of this, how Donald Trump turned the United States into a headless giant. It's like, you literally wore, were for, like, modern, neo-liberal, like, cult, like, cult, like, colonizing missions in, like, the starkest sense that we're literally just aimed at, like furthering america's grasp and reach and like every you know what it's it's just it's so ridiculous that now he has turned his cheek and there's even a national post article from january of this year where they talk about you know how david from went from being a neoconservative pundit to being a relentless critic of donald trump without 
you know, pushing him really on the fact that he laid the groundwork for all this shit, not him, but in his his contemporaries. Right. So I think that like the biggest irritation this year of 2018 has been people who are people who are trying to recast George Bush and the people around him as being like reasonable for rule of law of all things, which they absolutely were not. They were bucking all sorts of international norms of like diplomacy of war of humanitarianism um to say nothing of also like you know frauding their own congress into like following into that war so to say that they they stand for this sort of like the the proper way of doing things is really absurd and now george bush is giving michelle obama candy and isn't he such an endearing old man with his watercolors <laughs> fuck him too I mean, I just, you know, this recasting of George Bush as this, you know, this old man who just paints in his parlor is fuckery to me. I I just I Mm -hmm. and and he gives candies to 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 like fuck you. Fuck you. And you know what? I will say this, too. I gave John McCain his 24 hours. And then I was like, you are respons- partially responsible for where we're at right now. Were. Mm-hmm. Obviously, but were. And, you know, he's the one who elevated Sarah Palin to yeah. some sort of normality. Mm-hmm. Okay? And Sarah, you're telling me that you didn't know about this woman before you chose her for vice president? No, it all started there. And, uh, I mean, we can't forget the Tea Party movement of that time. And David Brown used to, like, write and speak so highly of those people as well, like, to bring him back into this. Exactly. Exactly. And the other thing, like, the other thing, too, is that I feel as though because there's so much craziness from from the inmates that the attendants of the asylum get to run walk away free that's my problem so what uh, on the steve bannon thing i mean what what's, i forgot what, about him yeah <laughs> well i think it's important like i think that's the hot take is that david frum's also a piece of shit never yeah. forget and, and steve bannon you know what else could he possibly say or debate? I think treating him as someone who, you know, deserves a platform like this or speaks for populism. Like, okay, I'll just say, like, be really brief. The idea that right-wing populism is populism, period, or is, like, the best, like, you know, like, or is the thing that's diametrically opposed to also, like, why, like, liberalism is kind of bullshit. Um, And I think, like, letting him run away with, like, getting to define populism is also, like, bad for the debate. In past formats, Uh so I've attended two monk debates. I was also a former competitive debater. So I feel really implicated. I'm I'm really shocked at this right now. So there were a lot of us (laughs) used to, like, be really obsessed with the monk debates. And I, like, you know, and some of them, and they're not, they're all kind of problematic. I mean, to the one that was like, you know, the end of men and, you know, like and sometimes I'll have like four people, two and two debating on each side, which is what they did with the recent Jordan Peterson one. So uh, and then they'll have these big ones where it's like the two heavyweights. The most popular that they did was uh, Tony Blair debating Christopher Hitchens. I don't know if you remember that one about the. I remember that. It was like a very big deal. And I mean, a little bit better. Also, you know, Blair's also a war criminal, but whatever. Yes. Um, that's like, you know, they have these to think that David from and Steve Bannon, either of them merit 
like a stage to themselves to speak for all the complexities of what this question is is also bullshit and like it's just so elevating hit like a voice that i mean i don't think is bringing too much new to the table but wasn't peter monk himself like pretty much a racist yeah and like owns a bunch of gold mines and yeah, like totally and commits human rights gold, abuses yeah. like the world over so the man it's definitely told, in keeping with the man told the editor of the economist once that rape was just a cultural fact in Papua New Guinea. Oh, cool. Jesus. So that's what we're dealing with. So to me, the monk debates are at best tainted from inception. Mm -hmm. And that's fair. Um, I regret going for sure. I just want to well, be really how would clear you, about that. No, no, no. But like, how would you like? I live tweeted the whole time and shit talked it. So uh, if that, that makes anyone feel better, no, oh, please, no, no. All I'm right. just no, That's no, no. Fair. I'm just saying. That's that, totally fair. <laughs> I'm just saying that, um, you know, like how are how are you supposed to like? We all do shit, you know. We all buy the that product. We all attend that thing. We all we all do it. And how would we know to shit talk it if we weren't there? Oh, that's the argument that they're the free speechers will give. No, you. that no, no, no. I know, I know that's not <laughs> what you're saying, but like, you know, I mean, what about grappling with that question? Mm. So, my, I have a question: um, is is the issue the subject because you can't have like the this the idea that populism is is like can't really necessarily isn't diametrically opposed to liberalism or whatever or is the issue the individuals who are participating in the debate i, I think Both. it's all of them it's the idea that one steve bannon doesn't deserve more of a platform to debate an issue because it lends legitimacy to what he's saying and what the debate folks will say is that well there is some legitimacy this is an opinion that's taking hold in society and he has been in part an architect of like our modern discourse around it and so he should be there to debate it i mean it's like like i i kind of get that yes but i then, understand that argument but but then you have him but. also representing as a singular voice this thing and getting to like be yes, the like, vehicle for it. His view of economic populism is grounded in white, white fragility and, and supremacy, right? Yeah. So when people are like, well, he's debating this one thing and it's not, you know, we're not putting his white. Well, it's all rooted in that. And that you're absolutely right. Like that's that's what's forming his idea of populism. And if maybe in like it's not to say that like you can't debate conservative versus liberal ideas. And I think those are worthwhile debates you know like debating libertarianism and free markets and whatever like that's a fine debate to have but like when it's grounded in such like what are they what can steve bannon at this point illuminate at like i don't understand the first, what it is yeah. what the value add is when he's been interviewed so much it's exactly. not like he's been off the grid he's you know, everywhere. He's in Europe trying to, like, get right-wing populism, like, further off the ground than it already is. Like, he is very present in our consciousness. Now, the monk debates would say that's why he's a great get, and he's already out there, and, like, let's pit them against each other. But, you know, at the same time, I would much... Like, you know, anyway, at the same time, he is also someone who has been falsely billing like billing and fancies himself this like intellectual that he's like you know he's this self-taught brilliant man that all of the ideas came are from him and from Breitbart and like 
I think that's all sort of bullshit. Someone needs to call out that bullshit um, because he really is just like, you know, trading in the business of fear and insecurity and uh, like of, you know, a lot of, well, a lot of folks. I wouldn't even yeah. say just like, you know, yeah. white lower income folks. It's everyone. And trying to like say that he's, ma- he's the mastermind behind this. These are social movements that have existed um mm-hmm. they can appear in, like and is populism is one but many forms in which they can take and he is explo- he has been part of exploiting that and he it would be like you know having you know like what if we had a debate where george bush had to answer for i don't know like it's just like he's too close to it he is a pol- he's a political figure in a way that he's not speaking for the ideas or as an intellectual, like he has all sorts of other investments in like why he does what he does. Right. So I don't even think it's a debate per se. Right. It's like, it's really self-interested. And so do you, okay. So I guess the question then becomes how should we treat these figures? So I, you know, we don't want to normalize them, but I'm not convinced about, you know, leaving them in a dark box either like i i'm i i guess i'm trying yeah, to I figure out that that, yeah, that I, middle yeah i agree with it too and there was a good shortcuts episode with the reporter who interviewed faith goldie for example and like oh getting, like, i heard that, that. Like, yeah. and getting called out on like and him sort of admitting like i fucked up he interviewed her he went to one of her rallies to see you know kind of like what kind of audience she pulled and he asked her about some things that she had said in the past but didn't confront her about how uh she like she effectively like lied to him he was mm-hmm. like you know you yeah. said white genocide before like do you like do you really believe that like, oh i never said the words white genocide but actually there's like a million clips of her but saying he didn't there's do his genocide. homework like i, well, he I did. thought he that knew was that he knew that he knew all that uh-huh. but the issue was that he didn't the way it was reported was to report the interview almost as is. And so then the interview then sits and speaks for itself. And it allows the readers to project and assume that, oh, truly, she answered that she never said white genocide. Therefore, there is there, she, she's never said it. Instead of inputting into the article or, and also confronting her and saying, here's a clip of you, here's a clip yeah, of you, and here's a clip of I you. Remember, what did you mean when yeah, you said that? And I remember him saying, I, you know, he's like, oh, well, I added a couple links. Like, that's yeah, not good no, enough. You have to do you have to put these things in a context you have to put, but we yeah. I, I agree that we should not live in the dark either and i think a lot of people got you know blind like blindsided or taken off guard like you know off guard uh in the election in the 2016 election because you know we don't read the me- like we read the media that we are predisposed to favoring and like that's just like a very yeah. real psychological yeah. fact yeah um and it's very easy to avoid articles that like reference even right wing movements or right wing individuals. And, mm-hmm. and so the more coverage, the more contextualizing we do of that. And, and a good point that was made, is like, you have to have these people on record so that like when they do lie and then yeah. say they never said this or they weren't affiliated with this person, you're like, well, we covered that. How well, I, we know that you did. I will say this, the shortcuts, uh, the Candleland shortcuts episode that we're referencing right now, it did illuminate something for me that, a lot of these reporters do not have the um, the breadth of experience or to actually call. They just don't have. I wouldn't. Maybe it's not the experience, but maybe it's an understanding of what is happening. Like in terms of, 
I, I feel like, like they an don't appreciation know for the consequences yeah, of, of what I mean, they're doing. An editorial issue. And I don't know that that's because the thing is, is that when I see them, I see, I, I only see like in terms of their sort of interview, interviewing, or when they're interviewing, um, who whichever right wing, it just seems sometimes like they get played. Yes, I agree and, with this. And so that's one. That the second one is talking about white supremacy that's what it is right there is still this reticence on the part of journalists in news media to call it that and to actually frame it as sure. that and that's what i'm saying i feel like there is this there's a better way that it can be framed and and disseminated i guess a way and the whole like Steve Bannon New Yorker thing is another example of that. Yeah, I think the that I would put that responsibility on the news organization, not necessarily the reporter um, or the writer. Sorry, I didn't uh, distinguish. Yeah, um, and then to your first point, I would say I agree that it seems like they often get played, and I think part of that, or a large part of that, is based in the fact that these figures have to hone their message and communicate it and practice it in such a refined way that it doesn't seem that they're necessarily being outwardly um, white supremacist or what have you, homophobic, whatever. Um, and so it makes it harder to challenge them because you can, they kind of talk themselves into this like, Sometimes, right? But the reporting comes sure. in from being like and attuned to where they are communicating with people who share their views. Yes. So you know that they've made representations in other places on Nazi podcasts or in certain internet forums, and then you put that to like that's the skill. Yeah. Instead of just taking but what I they also, say at face I also value. Don't I also don't think that there are many um, f- formats in which you can accurately do that in like a closed setting so if someone's in a closed setting interview with you you can definitely definitely do that but then you have all these other things to say and cover too that like it's you can't just get bogged down in one kind of circular argument so like you said this well I didn't actually say that this is what I meant okay but you said it so what did you actually mean like if that just ends up kind of hijacking the whole time and that's not. Well, but you can put it to them after for comment and you can do all sorts of things with it. Or you can just report it as fact if it has been established as fact in the past. Um, but to let to get to give an interview or to give a platform without putting the right context on it in terms of journalism. And that's not necessarily, for example, what the monk debates are, but it is a, you know, a forum for like a public just like you need to capture what's actually being said not just what the person is putting out there um otherwise they're they are taking advantage of that situation and that's the new yorker thing was that you know they were interviewing him and giving him this whole segment and headline piece and people were like i mean like one you know why does he need this platform you also just did an exclusive like article with him like you are like there's a documentary coming out like come on like it's just so it's just so excessive and there's not much value add from a journalistic standpoint or from even an idea standpoint to what he's bringing and actually it's tarnishing the work that other people are doing and you never you don't see 
you know, le- like you also do, like uh, anyway, there there's not enough of a discussion around like left wing schools of thought either that like you know get similar play where we keep having the same conversations with the same populace who then also are being interviewed by the same people who don't really push them either. Why can't they give like a movement a platform? Like you know what I mean? I I just. The, th- the New Yorker thing is the fact that it was a festival and he was high, like headlining, headlining it. And, you know, yeah. And, they and then they're charging. Yeah. They're like, charging people. They're paying him. Exactly. And they announced it like just before ticket sales went up. So, like, yeah, like kind of one other one of those, like we just duped you into buying tickets for this thing that you probably wouldn't have exactly. gone to. Like, comedy. Exactly. Style. It was shady as fuck. Yeah. And it's only when like Judd Apatow Tao, or whatever, whomever. Mm-hmm. He he's just like no, I'm not going. I'm I'm dropping out. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. You know. No, for sure. And and there's good so many, on Judd Apatow. There's by so the many way. other people like you know Roxanne Gay like Roxanne, spoke out about yeah, it and like yeah. people who are who have been published and then staffers yeah. as well like yeah. wrote to like you know David Remkin and we're like but what is this need to for um, establishment like liberals to to somehow normalize or 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 there's so much curiosity or giving these people a platform when there are people on the left doing great things and their movements on the left that they could give an equal voice to there, i feel like they don't yeah there's definitely like a, a uh, significant bias towards center or center right ideas i i agree um, yeah. that, that get covered um and very little that comes from and and because people have bought almost bought into this idea that so much of the mainstream is liberal and this actually gives way too much credence to the right that all of our mainstream thinking is actually so liberal and like small l american kind of conceit yeah. of liberal yeah mm-hmm. um and you know like whether it's the and the, like from a, you know like the Jordan Peterson thing of like the forced speech around gender pronouns and like things like yeah. that and people think like you know liberals have gone run amok and so then news organizations or events like the New Yorker and I haven't seen the full lineup but like I'm I'm feel confident in assuming aren't then like oh but let's talk it like let's bring in a socialist or social democratic exactly. thinker you know and like talk about that you know um, and like give that weight but they're they like almost are supporting this idea that like status quo is liberal and the only thing oppositional to that is right-wing populism right. which means if they can paint the liberal as the status quo then every problem that you have under the status quo is because of the liberals yeah or and not then a you problem. can fr- yeah, exactly. and then you can yeah. frame it yeah. so that well look what they've done mm-hmm. and like i i just I I think part of the problem too is if I could make this conjecture is is that the the center and center right is probably reflected in um, news corporations and the and the actual management of those corporations too instead of like I'm, broadcast right so. Like there's a difference between the reporters and then the management who makes all the decisions, right? So I, I feel yeah, it's why we don't have labor beats anymore. Yeah, it's why we like, don't have beats know, anymore. You know, I feel like the newsroom has gotten so not the newsroom, but at least the management has gotten so kind of well, MBA elite. Yeah, because they all have fucking millions of dollars, and they're like, oh, I'll have absolutely have a tax cut. Great. 
I just want to fire people when I want to. It's more convenient for them as business owners. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so not sure if you guys know. I'm, you know, you guys definitely live <laughs> under rocks. <laughs> so um, on Labor Day, Nike announced their 30th and launched their 30th anniversary of their Just Do It campaign with uh, Colin Kaepernick, the former NFL quarterback who famously began taking a knee during the national anthem in order to protest police brutality, igniting a national conversation about race, sports, and the meaning of patriotism. The ad, which features a close-up of Kaepernick's face and the tagline, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything, was met with praise from fellow Nike athletes like LeBron James and Serena Williams, as well as former CIA, CIA director John Brennan. That, quote, everything refers to Kaepernick's professional football career following his departure from the San Francisco 49ers in 2016. 17? 2017. 16, I think. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's two years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So he was essentially blackballed from the NFL for his political demonstrations and is actually um, in the middle of a collusion case against the NFL. So Nike's decision to feature Kaepernick in its campaign is part of a larger trend. Since the 2016 U.S. presidential election, brands, once terrified of controversy, are more and more likely to enter the realm of politics. So just some some straight-up facts here. Um, the This ad has generated about $160 million in earned media. Um, Nike's audience skews younger. Uh, they're more diverse and they're more liberal. Um Half so Nike is worth I think like thirty five billion dollars, um, and half of that revenue comes from the U S. The rest is all global revenue, hmm. um, and in in protest I guess to this ad, um, conservatives and people on the right have been burning their shoes, cutting <laughs> their socks and their shorts, and like. Somebody rid blew of, up like, their house, eh? Getting rid of these <laughs> Nike logos. Yes. Oh, it, by accidentally yes. lighting something on fire. By too? lighting, so they that. were lighting their Nikes on fire, and they they ac- they accidentally blew up. The, it's Florida, like Jesus, Ugh. you know, Florida. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> anyway, people have lost their goddamn minds, um, in both good ways and bad ways. Yeah. So, Erica, our branding <laughs> expert. What are, what are your thoughts here? Um, I have many thoughts. Um, I would wait a minute before before we get into the brand. I would like to note that there is a difference between how black people have received this news and how well-meaning white people have. <laughs> so, and I will. Yeah, please go first in case I fuck up. So you. Can <laughs> okay, so black people, I think understand better the levers of power in this situation not i'm not saying in general but in this situation specifically and so we've seen this play out for the last two years because at the beginning like once kaepernick took a knee we're like yeah that's done the nfl and the owners most definitely colluded I don't I don't think that mm-hmm. um, any anybody I know that has to be proved in the court of law, but I I'm pretty confident in that. Yeah. They colluded to keep him out. He lost his job. Right. And then you have the president coming in 
and treating anybody who and criminalizing that act, criminalizing it so much that he is the one who changed the context of the protest Mm -hmm. from it being a protest of police brutality to it being a protest of the flag or the anthem Mm -hmm. or whatever the fuck it is. And mainstream media has 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 echoed this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for us, I think we see this as a victory, a victory of 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 blackness, actually, and how valuable we are to culture, because that's the other thing Nike is 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 profiting off the culture the culture Nike mm. is the culture now Nike is the culture so any and uh, you know I've said this before that um black youth um and now increasingly I would say uh latin la- latinx is it latinx thank you youth um drive culture mm. so I also think that this became um, a victory of a victory of the protest in some ways, but more legitimization Mm -hmm. and the legitimization of this protest through one would say capitalist means is, you know, money talks. And bullshit walks. And I think that we understand that. And we understand the nuances of what has happened and how it's played out. And that even though it's Nike and Nike has Nike has problems. Nike has a class action sexual discrimination lawsuit coming out. You can you could even say that that's part of it. Um, Nike has numerous like labor abuses for sure. But in this context. What Nike has done is made Colin Kaepernick into this global brand and global beacon. And they can move, he will move through in terms of the globe and what his message is. He can now share that globally. And I I, I just think that that is actually a good thing. we also know Nike's history with Michael Jordan and how, um, and how the NBA banned his shoes. Now, Michael Jordan, whose Air Jordans are basically probably the best-selling shoe of all time, basically took this black kid, which was never done before, and made him into a superstar. And what that says for kind of um, black, a black kind of idea of capitalism and power and social justice cannot be separated that's my point i mean i don't know i i like great for colin kaepernick great for like having i mean i'm really appreciating the trolling of the nfl by like running these ads um at the start of games and like throughout and and I think that's really powerful, but I don't think it's a celebration of Nike, which is clearly doing this from a, a strict bottom line perspective. And it's also not a sign that there's more purchasing power among like ra- like racialized folks either. I think it's just that's 
Nike's demographic. So I don't know that it's like shedding too much light on that. I think Nike made a choice and knew that making a deliberate choice with one spike sales and two that they weren't going to lo- be losing too much of uh, too much by alienating people who aren't regular or habitual or as much consumers of their product anyway. So, you know, I, I'm not celebrating the corporation, nor do I think that. Well, I don't, think other, it, I don't think it is a celebration. No, no, I know. But some people like that. That is a common thread in a lot of people's posts. It's like, look at how great. And then like people are responding to the Trump tweet by saying, you know, what, like he, he, he tweeted, like, what is Nike thinking? And people are replying with like the names of folks who have died at the hands of police brutality. Mm-hmm. That is not what Nike's thinking. No. Nike is absolutely oh, like, no. not at all of that mind. There is a set like there is now uh, a place for corporations and they there's more and more of them doing this to take our like va- like to take values and use them to substitute for like other, what with traditional branding. Um, and that's whatever. That's fine. I would rather give, you know, my money to a, or a company that's slightly more ethical or at least, you know, like you know that like that that's part of every consumer's calculation like what of our purchasing does the least amount of harm or it should even though no company is perfect because no corporation could ever be but it's definitely not a sign of like nike's wokeness it's definitely performative wokeness that we're seeing time and time again um i will just say like you have people like michelle brempel who tweeted like does this mean that brands who don't play to uh what their markets want are then unethical. It's just like turning the idea on its head. It's like, no, you can have a brand that's not, that does nothing except sell good quality shoes and that's fine. But, you know, like, anyway, it's just kind of really funny how people are taking this to mean all sorts of things when really it just means the company decided to make more bank. Yeah, so a few things. I agree and disagree with your point about like, their target market like the reality is that like sure like in terms of quote-unquote the culture yes it is targeting a specific demographic but like the reality is that like nike has been making fucking shorts that high school kids have been using tennis clothes running gear running shoes and like that is purchased by anyone so like i don't know that like their target demographic is people who are active uh, partly, but it's also like, like there, there are people who buy street... more. There are people sure. who do consume more. Sure. Um, and, that, and then that's like that's like the culture side, though. Yeah. That's like the streetwear side, not necessarily. Doesn't, but that's what they're selling, and they're making like a new line, right? Like they're that like that's what they're thinking about, like how much of a purchasing marketing share. Because you buy like you know a pair of runners, how often? I mean, I mean, frequently. Well, well I don't sure. even buy <laughs> Nike. I'm not a But, like, these suburban so. dads burning their socks and shoes are probably, like, you know, buying from multiple different brands. They're also not brand sure. loyal, so there's that as well, right? Yeah. I don't... Listen, I know Mikey... N- Mikey. Nike totally did it. They crunched the numbers. They sure. saw the no, numbers but, and stuff. And I... That's fine. No, no, no. But, like, the yeah. thing is, is that, like... Colin Kaepernick hasn't played football. This is his second season, not being signed by a team. Right. His jersey was still in the top 50 sales. Exactly. Exactly. So they're still like, the, like, I, anyway. Um, and also, but the other thing too is that he's also been with them since 2011. Exactly. He's still under contract by them. Yeah. So it's not like they signed him to a new contract. Exactly. They just made use of an underused asset. Exactly. Mm. Um, what I think like, I think the people who 
are upset by using Kaepernick in Nike are completely ridiculous because like the message they're they're sending is that like it actually says like if people think that your dreams are crazy then they're crazy and you should still pursue them even if it means you're making all of these crazy sacrifices and you're like I think that's a very reasonable and admirable statement to make regardless of who the Sherpa is Mm -hmm. you know like if you think about it just from an objective point of view the branding and the message is like spot on and like that's what Nike has been doing since the beginning of Nike I noticed that they didn't show any clips of kneeling did they in the 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 ad I don't think they did think so so they they watered it down for for mass consumption which is you know whatever like I I just I personally can say that Nike is making a a complete business decision sure and that's okay and calling Kaepernick is now is making a money decision is, is making a money decision and making a brand decision and that's okay and the results being that there are many different facets to this. That's what I'm saying. And I think for us as black people who, you know, are very familiar with what he's protesting, um, we see it as, some of us at least, some of us see it as a victory. And not a victory for Nike, a victory for highlighting issues. And those issues being taken seriously. I think that's where, and that's the nuance of it that I think like most well-meaning white people who have commented on my Facebook, that's the part that they're missing. That's all I'm saying. Hmm. Interesting. I think it's unfortunate though that without a multinational corporation like Nike being behind an issue, it's going to be, it it, it doesn't get airtime or get like a meaningful like, like thinking behind it because for how long have people like been retreading the same ground that like or like losing sight of what the protest what it's about focusing too much on trump's backlash like we should like but that wasn't nike that had been done before i know that's what i'm saying like i'm saying it's unfortunate that but for a corporation interceding to some degree to like elevate someone's voice we have no like for example journalism in this country has done nothing to elevate this story or to talk about it in an honest or earnest way um the veteran who uh colin kaepernick had consulted with before he chose to kneel is now doing the like media circuit rounds and i'm kind of like well why did no one talk about this two years ago and instead, we've let this conversation become about respect and the flag and veterans when it's absolutely it's never been about that. Um, and until this until, you know, again, like a company intercedes and makes it like popular again or like, you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's just really unfortunate that our our platform for national discussion has to be an ad campaign. That's all I mean. I th- that's not an indictment on anyone yeah, except yeah, yeah. for no, like I get, the no, media. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just yeah. like taking it in and kind of trying to, I think that, um, I think it's unfortunate that it didn't come from media. Like that the discussion, the real discussion was not kind of taken by media and actually, you know, spoken about. Like I, I think. Like there haven't been like on major news networks even interviews with Colin Kaepernick I know he hasn't been giving any sure but there's been some print stuff there's like the the same with the veteran 
uh, that he like had consulted, who's now fi- like finally doing media. Not that I'm saying he should have been doing it from the outset, but like there was no reflection on that. And it was all all the punditry all the time was about who Donald Trump was speaking to, who he was shit talking, who was inviting to the White House. And like it's just so reactionary and none of it was anything of substance. Yeah. Um, so Duray McKesson on Pod Save the People, he he is friends with Kaepernick and he just says like he just doesn't want to talk to people. And he's like he will he will be very selective in who he speaks to. Which fair. Why would he trust well, anyone yeah. to take his story with uh, like and treat it legitimately because they've proven that they can't do that. And same. I mean, just even the underlying issue of police brutality has been treated as you know, a- about whether or not we should talk about police brutality, not yeah. about the act of, you know, like the many, many, con- like, con- like, oh my God, I can't even, it's just so frustrating. Every day there's a news story about mm-hmm. some fucking dumbass cop blindly shooting because out of like complete pure racist motivation. Yeah. And not nearly the, like an ounce of like the, you know, proper like so time you, and place. Do you think that, it. that, probably the reason that we're here talking about a Nike ad and that Nike kind of, I feel like Nike took up the slack of, of the media. I feel like the media fell on its job here and um, did not, did not do anything to either verify the, the information or didn't even bother to find sort of people who were maybe doing the work with Kaepernick. What's his foundation about? Yeah. What is that? Yeah. I hear his foundation bought, bought a whole bunch of shoes too. <laughs> Funny. But what's his foundation about? Yeah, what is it doing? Who also let's let's and, and 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 let's talk to his peers yeah. who were kneeling and why they were kneeling. I mean, I I feel like the media really dropped the ball, and so it's like Nike came along, and now the media, and now it's like oh. Yeah, it was all about the process of the thing. Who like that he was dropped, what the owners were saying. Like it was never really about what, and that's the issue with so, how social movements and political, um, like more radical political discourses dealt with. People don't know what to do with it. They do, like they, you know, we have this whole fuss about Steve Bannon and talking about ideas in the public. No one's talking about ideas. People only talk about process. All most media is just about the way things are being debated in yeah. the public and whether or not we're using the right tone or we're talking to the right people or we're speaking in the right way. And it's never about, like, even the stuff about, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and all the other, you know, Democratic Socialist caucus that's, like, now popping up. None of the column pages have been about what she is talking about from a policy standpoint. It's all been, how did she do this? How exactly. did she get here? How did exactly. someone who is a nothing like her get to where she is? Wow. Exactly. You know, she ran a great campaign. What is she talking about? Let's interrogate that. Like, let's get into like, it, like, is there an appetite among Americans that they could vote support something like this? You know, putting like, you know, casting it into like, like a more grounded light instead. But it's all, it's always about how, Again, it's process. It's just process pieces. It's just about how people who's spinning better and what's being spun, but not like not about anything substantive. Agreed. The other thing they oh, I haven't sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> the other thing I haven't I haven't seen with Cortez and you know the others who have been winning is how does how has the demographics shifted? What does that? What are the implications for policy? 
where are the where were people feeling that they needed a change? Like all of these things are important and could actually inform us in terms of what is going on. But I haven't seen that. You're right. It's more like how'd she do it? And does she know about economics? Is she and 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 just really talking about her competence? And I'm just like, of course she's competent. She's here, regardless of whether she's competent. She's elected. That's so the what, point. What she's saying. Well, like, not, like, not yet. Well, she's <laughs> well, well, you know what I mean. She's, but she's nominated. She's been the, nominated, and she's yeah, very likely yeah. to be elected. Yes. So, like, yeah. I want to. I want to know more about the constituents, <laughs> the voters, what they're looking for, what kind of policy changes they want. That's what I want to hear. How she connected with them in terms of and what she gave them. I have two questions that we don't necessarily have to answer. One is, do you think people are interested in reading about the policies? I think there's a way to write about issues in a way that grabs people. Absolutely. And and there was better. Like there have been moments where we've had decent coverage of that. I thought there was very good coverage Although, I mean, this may just be hindsight speaking. I don't know what I thought at the time. But when the Obamacare health care debate was happening in the States, there were a lot of major publications. And, and the thing is, there are people writing this. There's just, I'm, we're talking about like mainstream that the late, per, like for someone who isn't already part of this would read it and also treat it as news instead of like opinion or a long form that would be hard to digest. But around the healthcare debate, there was definitely a lot more of, I mean, there was all this stuff about death panels and all the weird like shit Republicans were trying to throw wrenches in. But there was a lot of legitimate discussion about um, profiles of people, who, how, what they could afford or can't afford, how they were living. Sure. Uh, after the recession, there was a lot of like pretty decent in some places. Some of it was a little too um, outsidery about like, you know, for example, like the collapse in Detroit and how mm -hmm. people were like surviving and making it and like what kinds of things they were looking for and wanted that were um, interesting. And I'm thinking mostly like there were a lot of good New York times profiles but that actually, you know, won Pulitzer's or whatever around that period. So do you think that that is just because like, like the healthcare debate, I think is, it was a moment different. in time. It's different yeah. because one, it was a moment in time to, it was a president leading a singular thing. And it's not like, I think that we, we talk about Trump's immigration and we do those same types of pieces mm -hmm. because he's the president mm -hmm. and she's not the president. She's going to be in the house of reps. But and like, mm -hmm. so like she's part of a party establishment. So like, well, she's not part of the establishment. She's part of a party. And she is a counterculture sure. within that party. Sure, but like, I, I the, the, but what, the, yeah, the Democrats have a set saying, of yeah. policy views. Sure, sure. Whether or not she agrees with them well, is that's neither the here nor but there. That's, but that's the story. That's the story, absolutely. But like, when, if we're talking about like big picture, but it doesn't. But I'm saying like it's um, it's it. So I'm just saying the, my, the media my point, waits until those moments come up yes, and then absolutely. talk about them. That's unfortunate. Yes, and I. So my my second question is: Do you think that this is a symptom? of the cuts and made to media like is this like just because there just aren't enough people to cover all of these these things like erica was talking about how she wants to see like what people are saying and like get talking to the people and it's like are these things that people are interested in okay fine sure absolutely but like can the resources be dedicated to that 
Well, we keep reading the same thing, rehash in multiple papers, and people keep sending journalists to, to write the same story about the same thing. And then to say nothing of the money that's spent on, you know, columnists who've been around since time immemorial who are rehashing the same tired ideas. Fire all those fuckers. Fire the Margaret Wentes and the Christy Blackburns of the world. I know that's what you're thinking. And, <laughs> And stop rehashing things that you can like that you're getting that you could get from a newswire service or that like need to be a paragraph and then do the work at contextualizing them. But every like it's it's a it's a, there is a problem with how people get their news that also like makes this like you know like you need the page hits to get the ads and like that's a big problem. But at the same time, like if it still needs to be done. Otherwise you are like, there is no point of a media that doesn't actually talk about these things or says that they talk about them on the one hand. And then, yeah, or, or well, look at all the publications that are now writing about whether or not Steve Bannon should be appearing places instead of maybe spending the time to write about what the underlying ideas are. Are we at fault? Are we, as I mean, as like the Royal, we in terms of readers yeah, yeah. at fault for that because we are like, Oh, well I want to read that. I think I that's a chicken and the egg argument yeah. and I think that the media uses that argument and I think it's disingenuous because they are they are the gatekeepers at the same time. So you can't have the power and then not have the responsibility. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it is and so they're Spider-Man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Apparently every time I see it, say this, I did love Spider-Man as a child. But, you know, <laughs> the the old one, not this, I don't know, this imposter. Anyway, um but you know like i but it's true i mean they want to they want to guide inter- the, the conversation i would assume i don't know how you wouldn't want that as a media company and but they want to water it down at the same time for quick hits well where's the value i'm not sure that they i'm not sure that they get that that the value matters and that's why you have publications like, I don't know, Undefeated eating their lunch, for example. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's six of one and half a dozen of the other. It's a cycle. They provide this, this quick clips, assuming that that's what people want. And people are like, okay, I see that this is this, this is this, this is this. And that's all there is. So, you know, it would be nice if there were a mix, let's say. So I feel like, for example, you can put those quick hits on like social media or whatever, but you could do the investigative reporting on your actual sort of site, your your owned media. That's what I'm saying. It doesn't have to be one or the other. You can serve both. Well, uh, stay tuned for Rent and Receipts. <laughs> And now we're on to rent and receipts. This is where we each bring uh, something to share with the others. I think Erica's going to get us kicked off. So as we all know, um, this week was back to school. And uh, so I have a little school uh, article to talk about. Okay. So the ACLU is partnering with the UCLA Civil Rights Project to publish a series of reports and data tools to enhance the public's understanding of civil rights data collection. In a recent publication highlighting the data on school climate and safety, the administration reported on the number of school shootings without checking for errors, potentially inflating 
the number of school shootings by the hundreds. Instead of proceeding with care, the administration, that is Betsy DeVos, is now using flawed data on school shootings to emphasize the need for more school discipline, which has turned schools into militarized places that deprive students of color of an equal education as previously reported by earlier administrations. So this study had four takeaways. Number one, for the first time in history, public schools in America serve mostly children of color. Mm -hmm. When federal data was first collected in 1968, over 80% of public school students were white. Because of changing demographics, white students now constitute just 49% of American school children. The, um, the second takeaway, the amount of lost educational opportunities are particularly severe for students of color. Dramatic disparities exist at the school, district, state, and national levels. California, for example, enrolls four times as many white students than black students, yet the total number of instruction days lost by black students due to suspension was 141,000 for blacks compared with 151,000 for whites. The third takeaway, many millions of students are in schools with cops, but no counselor, social worker, or nurse. Mm. Students with disabilities are disproportionately impacted by the practice of exclusionary discipline. Nationally, students with disabilities lost instructions due to suspensions at more than twice the rate of their non-disabled peers. And the last takeaway is over 96% of the serious offenses reported in the new data do not involve weapons, in contrast to what the Trump administration mm -hmm. has said. There were over a million serious offenses involving students reported in the 15-16 school year, over 96% of these related to fights, physical attacks, or threats without weapons. So um, the, LC the ACLU has really stepped up their data reporting on, um, on issues of marginalization. And um, so I, I think it's, first of all, the, the takeaway for disabled students I'm not surprised, but I'm glad somebody has, like, data on it. So now we can say, okay, yes. Um, 80, the changing demographics of public school students, I wonder if that's an income or wealth issue, too. Mm -hmm. And the counselors, the schools with cops but no counselor, uh, social worker or nurse, um, is troubling. So my my mom has a friend who um, works with intervening in schools. Um, so when there's a conflict at school between the 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 child, and these are marginalized children, mostly Black and Indigenous, and the school, their job is to come in and create solutions for the child by interacting with the school, kind of being um, an advocate mm -hmm. for the child and the child's family so that they don't get suspended or expelled. Because right. once that happens, mm -hmm. it's a prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. So that's another sort of 
thing to look at. I mean, it's it's straightforward. I don't mm-hmm. think there's much to discuss. Well, I found it interesting because, you know, I had met with um, somebody who was running for school count. Uh, sc- oh, jeez. Trustee. Trustee, thank you. And had no idea about these discrepancies. Oh, wow. And so, and had never heard of the school to prison pipeline. Oh. Yeah. So. Which is absolutely a thing that happens yep. in Canada. Yeah. Well. Absolutely. I don't think people should uh, think otherwise. Right. Um, uh, it, the it Toronto Star has written yeah. about this. And not, not just with, um, there's, sus- there's suspensions and, and it's also like um, streaming into college, university and applied classes mm-hmm. tends to be quite uh, discriminatorily applied. And so a lot of folks will get streamed really early on in applied or college level classes and then have um, no shot of getting into a higher post-secondary education or at the very least like end up on in, you know, low level. I shouldn't say low level. I don't mean in a in a pejorative way pejorative way i I just mean in terms of like um you know folks coming from a lower socioeconomic background almost like are you know forced into staying that way because there is no um you know encouraging kids to to uh, be in be in the higher level more challenging classes and they're and it's usually like a, a teacher's bias or discriminatory lens applied and projected onto children and just even the idea that streaming is a thing is already like quite flawed yeah um it's i mean not said a city uh someone's running rather for school trustee would uh be st- i mean it's not that shocking but it's it's unfortunate that there's someone it's that unfortunate running. yeah there's uh, really there's hard. still some learning to do let's mm-hmm. say mm-hmm. and how are they like responsive to yeah yeah guy? no 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 they were responsive like yeah. i i'm i'm not I guess I'm not trying to, you know, crap on that. No, but no, no. At the I'm same just time, wondering. Yeah. yeah, no, they were yeah. responsive. At the same time, though, I, I'm kind of like, Ottawa is, um, like, the fastest growing demographic is black youth. Mm-hmm. So these things, these issues um, will come up. And this, at some point, we have to stop saying, I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah, ignorance is not a defense of the law. It shouldn't be used for anything. So I because if it is, it just means that you're blind to it and you just prefer to live in a little bubble, which means that you shouldn't be representing people. Exactly. Yeah, I have a little anecdote. Um, When I was growing up in grade school, um, my teacher at the time tried to tell my parents that I was mentally slow. And that I needed to be put in remedial classes. Right. You mentioned this thing before. Yeah. Did I? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, I mean, it happens, people. It's a thing. And it's another way that the experience of um, people of color in Canada, in the U.S., but really in Canada, differs. It is, it's like a parallel universe. And it is in every part of every institution it's in our DNA and I just want I just want people to understand that that's all yeah and like we are seeing a massive attack on the education system particularly in the United States where the, you know they're 
some states they're not funding education in terms of infrastructure in terms of teachers salaries in terms of um, aids and support and in some districts in some states kids only go to school four days a week wow because they can't afford to have the the school open for an extra day i had no idea oh wow it's wow. so fucked up because then that affects um, moms because yeah, they're going to be the ones who who are going to have to stay home from work because it's not going to be the men. No. Um, that which means that they can't work, which means that if the mother is working, then they have to arrange child care or the child has to stay at home and then gets into trouble and then it just perpetuates this like horrific cycle. Right. Exactly. That's crazy to me. So, what, I don't even know where to start, like, what, but then there are even schools where, you know, they don't have heat, like, in Baltimore. Yes. Mm -hmm. Or some schools. Or don't have clean drinking water, like, in Detroit. Yes, and then there's even been even schools, I want to say in Ontario, but I'm not 100% sure, where... They don't have air conditioning. Yeah, so it's like in Toronto. There's a bunch of schools with no AC in Toronto. Yeah. And like the beginning of September, in June, maybe even in May, like it gets it can get really hot. And when you've got thirty bodies mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in a room, mm-hmm. it gets hot and stifling and that's not conducive to learning. Yeah. Yeah. Or for persons with disabilities. Exactly. Yeah. Well, or, yeah, or especially exactly. or especially young kids. Yeah. You may as well be locking them in a hot car with the windows up at that point. Yeah. So there's a full report um, on ACLU.org under issues and juvenile justice. So check it out. So my rent and receipts this week is a story that just made me roll my eyes. Uh, The National Coalition for Men a men's rights organization based in Southern California has formed the beginnings of an all-volunteer law firm seeking to change legal systems that it claims are discriminatory against men on the state, federal, and even international level. While the NCFM's firm is not the first firm to cater to men's issues, it may be the first to have grown directly from the men's rights movement. Sorry, I don't know if you heard my eyes rolling <laughs> out of my face. Um, so before the firm's official establishment, the NCFM had been tangentially involved with gender discrimination complaints filed to the Department of Education, like the ones the group recently filed against the University of Pennsylvania and cases against small businesses that host female-exclusive events. The group kind of now considers these types of cases small potatoes and would like to focus on bigger fish litigation like lawsuits over false sexual assault or harassment accusers under Title IX, discriminatory health care practices in the remnants of the Affordable Care Act, and paternity cases. The Southern Poverty Law Center currently considers two other men's rights groups, um, which you may have heard of, A Voice for Men and, of course, The Return of Kings, as hate organizations for their extremely misogynistic messages that, quote, malign women as a group. The NCFM is not yet considered to be a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center also considers the NCFM's interest, interest in an influencing legal precedent as an effort to reduce women's protections. Um, the, intelli- um, the director of the Intelligence Project at the S- 
Southern Poverty Law Center says, quote, they say men are victimized at this massive level, but this is not something that accords with real world data. Women need strong civil rights protection, especially in paternity cases and divorce cases. I hope this doesn't lead to an undermining of protections like Title IX. This is the biggest load of shit I've ever heard. And I think it's hilarious that it's all volunteers because, like, no one, like, I'm sure they would get money. But, like, Mm. for people to actually, like, do something like this as, like, their full-time job would make them literally the scum of the planet. Well, I mean, it's it's. I mean, it's pro- really only a matter of time. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think there there are a lot of pro bono organizations mm-hmm. that offer free. So the the fact that they're volunteer, I don't know, is too much. It's too consequential. Their names will be on whatever decisions they represent people on. In any, uh, um, yeah, I mean, that's pr- that's pretty wild, but it's it's all not too surprising. And there are a lot of um, you know, men's rights organizations that have very um con- like legally based concerns especially around par- uh you know father's rights and all Absolutely. of that stuff so it seems like a natural progression from uh from that yeah i'm just tired of the uh the men's rights movement because a lot of it's bullshit but i totally agree that like there are legitimate issues that men need to be concerned about like mental health and how do you support and take care of each other but like that's not what they're concerned about at all no not at all that's the thing they need to take care of their own damn selves because i feel like you know you know men are are claiming uh, this is all a smokescreen to me men are claiming that they're being discriminated against for um for for practices that are really about equity. And this is typical of men's rights activists. They always frame these things as though they're being discriminated mm. against when they're when when women create female only spaces. Yeah, Every right. fucking space is yeah. theirs. Yeah. Hold on. But like think about it. Like if you when the last time you went to like a women's only event like that shit was like the most basic ass fucking thing you've been to. There's fucking, you know, cupcakes there with like glitter on them. There's some sort of like weird like hipster it's infantilizing. Signage. Yeah, it's entirely infantilizing. So you want men are gonna come there and want to be there? Fuck right off. They have no idea what it's like in there. Half the time, I don't even want to go to them because they're infantilizing. Yeah, and the thing is, is that on yeah, the other those, hand, those are different things. I mean, I, on on the other hand, though, women will bring men into f- spaces for veracity reasons for um for to make it what's the word i'm looking for um credibility reasons mm-hmm. and i'm bloody well sick of that mm-hmm. i remember i was at an event a women's only event but it wasn't cupcakes <laughs> And there was an MP there, and she's like, "Well, we need to bring men into the yeah. space." And yeah. I'm just fuck like, right "That comes up what a lot." The and it's fuck? like, Actually, or like, come into the space, but like, don't take up space. Like, those are the distinctions that people observe. need to make. And it's like, you know, organizations that deal with women's equity issues that are like so desperate to get men on their boards, as you say, for legit for for some sort of shroud of credibility it's like you can be part of an organization not be on the board and like also do all the volunteer work that women historically have done without ever being recognized so why don't you start doing that and like let 
women sit on boards of the exactly. women's organization. But no, you want to bring a man into take, yeah. taking up a space and, and providing get, experience yeah. that would be Yeah, for sure. For taking away an opportunity. Exactly. And then they get all the credit. They're in all the photo ops. And they're like, oh, it's so nice. I There's was, a man here. Well, but, and then he's the one who gets invited to like yeah. speak at all of these other yeah. things because, oh, wait, he's so progressive and woke because yeah. he supports women. Yeah. And we're supposed to pat him on the back for that? Yeah. Here's your fucking ally cookies. Like, I mean, I'm just sick of these other women who always want to bring men into the space for legitimacy. It's as though women, because really what they're saying is that women need the the thumbs up from a man to continue living and to continue fighting for something. We need to be apparently justified by men so that we can actually protest like i don't understand it's just it's so fucking backward to me and i'm sick of it i'm sick okay people if you're gonna invite me to an event do not invite me to an event a women's event with male speakers i don't want to hear it i don't want to be there okay done mm-hmm. i don't know how we got here but that's cool i know i don't <laughs> I just mean from the original thing you were talking because, about. Because, like, these You're not wrong. Yeah, who feel, are, who feel yeah. injured exactly. that they're excluded. I, and I and really on the it. other hand, we, like, not we. And then we placate we to them. Placate, we, yeah. and, we, and in placating them, we are actually supporting their supremacy. For sure, yeah. We see the argument that, they, that there is, in fact, some sort of discriminatory And then we wonder have, why they mansplain yeah. to us. <laughs> so, no, fair enough. I I see now how we got here, and I <laughs> am fully convinced. <laughs> Male speakers at <laughs> women's event. You gotta be fucking kidding me. What is, what is the? I saw an event. It's like women's empowerment center or something, and they're having this big, you mm. know. Well, you tweeted about this. Yeah, and um, so they had Christian Freeland, and they had some big names. Next to Justin Trudeau and somebody else. I'm like, who fucking invited him? Yeah, the Justin Trudeau taking up space to talk about feminism. Uh, like, come and support. Support your ministers. Come and attend. Like, cheer them on, but you don't get the Introduce mic. Introduce them. Maybe even that. But that's it. Who the fuck cares what you have to say? I don't give a shit what Justin Trudeau has to say about feminism. I just don't. We've heard I, we've enough. We've heard it. And then we've it's seen not that very deep. little. Exactly. Yeah. It's not that deep. It's, yeah, anyway, I mean, it's it's like when uh, <laughs> his wife wanted to commemorate, you know, International Women's Day. By uh, his, oh, you remember? My, you know I was. That Listen, thing day. that was what happened, what brought this podcast together. No, really? Yeah. yeah that's awesome. Yeah. I yeah, didn't know we were just specifically yeah. that the timeline does add up. Though. We we were just so incensed yeah. that we're we had to talk about it. March twenty sixth, yeah, twenty sixteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. I I just no. I, I like date, just date stop it. Is my point? Yeah. Just stop it. All right. So mine's a little bit different. Um, I just wanted to uh, point something cool that I read that I think. Uh, deals with an important topic in a really cool way. Vulture did a profile with a number of different comedians asking them what joke they regretted the most. And I think it's like a really interesting reflection on quote unquote political correctness, which they managed not to really talk about in this piece. They talk about reflecting on old material evolution and accountability, which is a uh, great framing. Mm. And, um, you know, as someone who's like really into comedy and, and following different been like into 
the craft of comedy as well. Um, I found this like really illuminating and there's a whole spectrum of, of, of folks, comedians and styles who they speak to from Weird Al to Peyton Oswald to Cameron Esposito and like some newer folks like Demi and Gigi Uibe. So it's uh, really neat and they all give kind of a story of the joke that they regretted the most and um, not dissimilar to a vulture podcast that asks uh, comedians and writers to dissect their favorite joke that they do, which is also kind of a neat concept. Um, but uh, just to highlight some of the, the stories that are told, Weird Al talks about how in a couple songs in the 80s used to wor- use the word uh, midget, which he says in the 80s was not much of a slur. It wasn't a kind word, but it wasn't a slur in the way it is today. These days, I don't say that word. In fact, at one point on my recent tour, I sang a song that had the word in it and I stopped the whole band and I explained to the audience how language has evolved over time since I originally wrote the song. This whole diatribe about why I used the word then and why I wouldn't use it now. And then we resumed playing the song and ended the song. Language changes over time. Some comics make it their thing never to apologize for anything. And as we see today with some politicians feel the same. Um, if, If I feel like I did something wrong, I'm sorry for it and I apologize. I mean, we all make mistakes and sometimes you have to call yourself out on it. Um, but it's just it's interesting that he tells like that he even stops to educate the audience too about uh, why he would or wouldn't engage um, in that joke. There's um, uh, sh- uh, Shashir. Uh, this S's are really hard for me right now. Shashir Zameda, um, who used to, who was a former SNL cast member, a really funny comedian, and is doing all sorts of neat stuff now, talks about how she used to uh, tell this joke um, about. You know, oh God, it's so hard to summarize these because they are. I don't know that this one's that bad, but it's like so awkward to repeat it. Uh, she tell this sh- joke. She come out on stage. She says in this braggadocious manner and say, "So many white men have moved in and out of this pussy. I could call it Williamsburg." And then <laughs> there's like a few others. That's awesome. It's pretty funny. That and is there's awesome. like a few others, you know, like references of like <laughs> you know, like white spaces. And then there's one where she says. So many white men have been beating up on this pussy. You could call it Rodney King. Oh, yeah. So she's like, oh, that line you see had a big reaction. Laughter, gasps, groans from the audience. Um, But over time, seeing how police brutality was like still so much a real thing, it stopped being a joke anymore. I feel like that would work for a black audience, though. Yeah, possibly. But then it, it, it but like in the trouble and what a lot of these comedians do try to grapple is like, who is the audience? And if mm-hmm. it's, you're talking in front of an audience of white people and they're 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 going to not be laughing at the thing you want them to be laughing about. The joke made them become at the expense of a group that you have no interest in, you know, demonizing, disparaging or speaking ill of or bringing any sort of, um, you know, bad will towards. And but because of people's own thinking you're actually what you're doing is elevating um the the main like you know whatever the the common thinking is that is actually like quite harmful and and hate-filled and um but you're right like there's a lot of nuance in that but you know and she she talks a fair bit there um there's a another uh comedian emily heller who tells this uh story about well her her joke the one that she she regrets the most she used to talk about you know 
there people associate being a gay men with a, a gay accent or a particular voice. Why is there no lesbian accent? And she talked about how, you know, it would be really funny to have a really bad fake French accent and as the lesbian accent. And she says, you know, I would the problem was she would start the joke by saying I'm not gay. And I and I know mm. I have to say that because people because of the people way people perceive me as always as being a lesbian. And she said, like, I realize over time, like that joke wasn't a it was kind of not necessarily like overtly homophobic, but feeds into this idea that you have to look a certain way. Yeah. And the joke comes at the expense of gay women who do present a yeah. certain way. Mm. Um, and so I thought that was really insightful and talks about um, a really interesting experience of going to a comedy show with a friend who was um, Asian American. And there was a, they were watching an improv show together, I guess. And the, uh, there was like a really bad um, accent that was being put on. And then there's like a kind of like a very offensive humor and her friend, you know, had to leave and was like in tears. And she says, you know, like ever since then, like I really like, I think about the impact that seeing like, re you know, replications of these really harmful um, representations have on, on people and audience members. And just to close, I think like the most salient, like uh, interesting framing for all of this comes from Patton Oswalt where he says like being a comedian and actually, you know, I'll just, I'll just quote it. Um, the core of what makes a comedian good is you look at stuff in the world that everyone accepts and you tear it down a little bit to find out what's funny in it. If you refuse to do that with your own work, and if and I only do that with the outside world, that's a pretty weak stance I have on myself. So if you're not willing to interrogate the jokes you're making to like really get out like what is funny and at whose expense and like is it still funny? And, you know, if it's just and there's, you know, a few references in, by other folks about rape jokes that really folks who should just try to get a rise out of the audience. Well, what what is that serving? And it's at many ways just lazy writing. And it's also not funny. The, the joke is in inciting a reaction but it's not then it's not really a joke right um so i think it's really interesting a lot of like you know comedians contribute to this and the vultures writing a fair bit about what is comedy now is there a post-comedy world that we're in and i know a lot of people get really weird about comedy and then they're like oh well now nothing's fun but these are a lot of really fucking hilarious people whose comedy has evolved over time um and i think that it's worth looking deeper into why we laugh and you know trying to laugh for the right reasons and laugh harder as comedy evolves hmm. i find that really interesting i think that i like i like that vulture was challenging them to think critically about their past material and mm -hmm. i think that there are definitely some comedians who don't give a fuck yeah well that's the thing yeah. um i think it also highlights that true comedy comes from when you're punching up not when you're punching mm -hmm. down and i think it also highlights say it again <laughs> right fuck mm -hmm. um i think it also highlights the fact that like writing jokes that are funny to a large audience but are also using words in the right way mm -hmm. is a lot of work mm -hmm. and for comics who don't do that and just use whatever language they want to um just shows that they're they don't care as much they're not willing to put the time into their craft to spend the time right. to to workshop it and it's just lazy that's right why would we reward these people they're not even good at their jobs yeah, yeah. so like yeah i'd rather you know 
I don't go to a lot of comedy. I don't watch a lot of comedy, but I appreciate it. But mm-hmm. like, I'd, I'd rather support people who take the time to find what is funny within even something else. Yeah. Instead of taking the low hanging fruit. Yeah. It, I, I think that, um, the great comedians are the ones who are able to do that stuff. And, but I'm assuming that not every comedian, even famous comedian, even sort is hash, like quotation, successful comedian can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that takes an intellectual capacity and an observe observational skill yeah. that, I don't think has been really worked on. Well, some people are um, just really defensive. Like yeah. Jerry Seinfeld refuses to play college campuses because he says that political correctness has run amok and he can't say anything without some backlash, so he's not even going to attempt it. I think that's like really, really ignorant. And a and cop it out. completely misses the point. And, it, and I think he still wants to bank on the comedy that he's known for um, instead of actually trying to evolve his craft. Um, and then you have other people. I am not like Jay Leno's biggest fan, but Jay Leno was on What the Fuck recently with Mark Maron, and he had like some really insightful stuff about uh, like political correctness is bullshit. Like, yeah, why wouldn't you want to um, evolve like the like evolve your work and like it ch- it challenges you to think differently and like isn't that what comedy is supposed to do? Um, and that you're both exactly. like a consumer and a purveyor of comedy exactly. as a comedian as well. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, people, you know, it's it's comedy stuff. You're out there, like it's very vulnerable. It you don't get the jerk on the first try. You workshop it. You have to perform multiple times, a n- like oh, a night and a and multiple times a week. Um, and you know, sometimes some jokes that you know you workshop at the beginning may have never gotten a laugh or may have gotten a laugh but at the wrong point at the wrong you know build the right way and it, there's a With lot of fine tuning and divi- different yeah, totally. audiences different totally. locations and you have to be adaptable yeah. and it's not about a thick skin per se but you have to not m- be defensive and think more about what is going to make um your effect your comedy effective and enjoyable like ultimately that's what about and if people watch it and are uncomfortable or feel unsafe or feel attacked well then what's the point right great well uh this has been great i'm glad we're back together yeah um so don't forget to follow us on social media on twitter at bad and bitchy on instagram at bad and bitchy pod on facebook slash bad and be podcast and uh, email us, badamipod at gmail.com. Bye! Bye. 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 Bye.